0: Welcome to the College Park Church of Christ Sermon Series Podcast. This sermon was recorded at the College Park Church of Christ in the Conroe-Porter area. Join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks for studying the Word of God with us. I want to piggyback tonight off of last night's lesson and if, if you weren't with us, I'm not going to be able to give a really succinct summarization of those things, but we talked last night about the impact that sin has on our lives and that if we don't handle it in the correct way, if we don't do what God has prescribed to us, that that sin can stay with us for years and years and years, even to the point of making us sick, spiritually, physically, emotionally, those type of things. And I want to piggyback off that tonight as we talk about the subject of righteousness in a study that I have entitled, He Made Him to be Sin. And this is going to come from Second Corinthians chapter 5. And this is probably a very familiar passage to most of us. Uh, I want to invite you to study along with us tonight. Uh, if you hear some things that might be a little bit different, uh, I would consider I, I would ask you to consider studying this further and looking at the Word of God. We're going to travel pretty quickly tonight through a lot of our study. Uh, but I think you'll be benefited by the study as we examine this. I know this was a passage when I was very young that gave me a lot of trouble because the concept that is, that is portrayed here by Paul that Jesus was made to be sin for us was something that was just very hard to fathom. And, and I, so I want to talk about that tonight, and we'll read this passage before we really dive in. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul says of Jesus, For he made him sin who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this phrase again, he made him to be sin, that's Jesus. Now he didn't make Jesus sin. He didn't cause him to sin. Jesus didn't commit sin. So there's obviously something else that he's talking about. Jesus not knowing sin, being innocent of sin, was made to be sin so we would be made the righteousness of God in him. And here's one of the fundamental problems that I had I didn't understand what righteousness meant and I had a lot of ideas about that some of those we'll explore as we go through our study tonight but this phrase the righteousness of God is a very important concept for you and I to understand when we talk about salvation and the grace of God and the mercy of God all those things we we have to understand what it means to be righteous so uh, I think Paul will help us In this discussion, if we look in some of his other letters, and one of those places is Romans 4, 6. And and we're going to talk about this passage and refer back to it several times. So we're going to try to go a little slower on this passage and break it down a little bit so that we can keep coming back to it and be reminded of the truths that are in it. So in this chapter, uh, Paul is discussing the righteousness of God. He's, He's also discussing righteousness that is by faith. And in particular, he's talking about Abraham and how Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or imputed to him as righteousness. And that, that word we're going to look at in a moment, imputed. So as he explains here, he says even David described that righteousness. And so David described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So let's look at these words. What does the word impute mean? That's a very important word, and it's used over and over in this chapter and in other places in the New Testament. What does it mean to impute sin or impute righteousness? And that's obviously what's being imputed here. That word impute means to count or to esteem or to reckon. To count, to esteem, or to reckon. So think of it this way. God counts someone as righteous. Does that mean they're righteous? No. It means he counts them as righteousness. He esteems them or considers them as righteous. And then he says this, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So he says he doesn't count or reckon or esteem someone's sin. And you know what he calls that? Righteousness. It's righteousness. So what is righteousness? Well, let's talk about what righteousness is not. Righteousness is not when God looks at me and says, you're finally good enough. That's not righteousness. Righteousness is not when I do a lot of things in my life and finally reach a height or a level of doing so many good things that God says, okay, now you're more righteous than you were bad, so now, therefore, I'm going to count you as righteous. In fact, righteousness is not something you and I will ever obtain without the help of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. You know, when I used to read this, you know what I thought? There's none righteous, no, not one, except the saints. That's what I thought, right? But that's not what he's saying. He's saying in reality, there's not one righteous, not one. Nobody, not one. Nobody's righteous on their own. Nobody can stand before God and say, look at my life, I've lived righteously. In fact, the only person who ever lived and could do that was Jesus, Because he knew no sin. He never committed sin. He was completely and perfectly righteous just as God is righteous. But you and I, in our best efforts, in our best moments, are never righteous in the eyes of God. We're not righteous. We're not right. God is right, but we're not right. Mark chapter 10, verse 18. One time Jesus was asked the question, and he was called good master. And Jesus asked a question In return, he reciprocated with the question. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus' question here. He's not saying, I'm not good, so don't call me good. That's not his point. I think he's drawing attention to the goodness of God. Who is good? You know, we use that phrase, I think, very loosely. We might say, well, he's a good man. And, and, you know, the way we use that, I get that. I'm not saying don't call somebody a good man. You know, there's, there's times where the Bible calls someone a good man in that way. But usually what we're doing is we're having some point of reference. We'll say he's good in our understanding of what good means. And so here's what I might often do. I might look at people in the world and say, well, they're a mess or they're chaos or, or that guy's terrible. And if we do that, we might really feel like, well, I'm good. But that's the wrong standard. And so when I ask myself, am I righteous, I have to look at the right standard. And here's what Isaiah says about the righteousness of man. He says we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness, that is the sum total of our righteousness, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, we're not going to get graphic or vivid tonight, but I would encourage you to go do a word study on the word filthy rags because it doesn't just mean something that has dirt on it. It is a soiled garment, a soiled garment. It's disgusting. It's an abomination. These soiled garments that he's talking about, they were meant to be taken and burned or, or, or put in the trash. They're discarded. And imagine, guys, that you go home on your anniversary and you give your wife a box full of soiled garments and say, Here you go. Have fun. But for some reason, we think that we can present that before God and he will go, That's wonderful. I'm pleased with that. We're filthy in the sight of God. That's humanity. Filthy in the sight of God. That's the sum total of our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. See, the truth is, if I look at other people and I can look at their mess and their life and their sin, I can feel like a pretty good person. A pretty good person. Maybe I'm around people that make me feel like not so good of a person. And either one of those things is not a good measurement. Because the truth is... We're not measuring righteousness by what we see around us, but what we see above us. And God is perfect. And when we say God is righteous, what we mean is God is good by nature. He's good by nature. There's nothing evil or corrupt or or, uh, deceitful in God's nature. God is good by nature in every way, form, and fashion. God is the origin of everything that is good. He is perfectly good. God is perfectly just. He's fair in all of His ways. What he does is completely fair. God is free from anything that is defiled. He's free from it. Completely and totally righteous. God, this is the word that I would summarize this. God is holy. You know, we use that word holy a lot. What does holy mean? It means pure. It means set apart. Well, set apart from what? From everything that's not holy. He's holy. Is that who we are? Are we righteous? No, there's none righteous. No, not one. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all come short of the glory of God. You've sinned, haven't you? You've sinned. I've sinned. We're not right. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I want to talk about Adam and Eve for just a moment. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. I think we can learn some things from Adam and Eve as regarding this subject about imputing righteousness and about the nature of sin and what... And, and when does God impute sin? When does He not impute sin? Because there is a time when God looks at man and He does not impute sin. Obviously, David talks about that. And there's, and there's going to be m- multiple facets of that. So we're going to start here in Genesis 2. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the, fr- of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So notice there are two things that God mentions of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he says, don't eat it. Don't eat it. And he says, in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And we'll get to that in a moment. But you ever wondered? I mean, we've got a lot of trees. Y'all have a lot of trees down here. For a West Texas guy, you have a lot of trees down here, okay? And you know what we call trees by? The fruit that they bear. You know, some trees don't bear fruit. We still have a name for them. we got a locust tree. We've got an oak tree. We've got a, a you know a spruce or a birch. or, or We have a peach tree, but... This is an odd name for a tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did he call it that tree? Was there something like inherent in the nature of that tree that would like miraculously give a person knowledge? I don't believe that's the case. But there's a reason why he calls it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he tells him if you eat that tree, in the day that you eat that tree, you will surely die. You will die. Now, do you know, do you know the story of Adam and Eve? Do you know how long Adam lived? He lived to be over 900 years old. Was God wrong when he said in the day that you eat this tree, you will die? Someone says, well, that's started the death process. I don't deny that. But I also believe Adam died that day. He died that day. The day he ate the fruit, he died. He died that day. The eyes of them both were open. This is immediately after partaking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The eyes of them both were open. That's kind of a peculiar phrase. And again, I know this sounds simplistic, but don't misunderstand. It's not literal. He, they weren't walking around like this and then they ate the tree and all of a sudden they could see physically. That's not what it means. But notice it says, and they knew. That's what it means the eyes of them both were open. They were open to something. They knew something that they didn't know before. Why? Because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did they know? What did they know? They knew they were naked. Do you think they knew they weren't wearing clothes? I think they knew they weren't wearing clothes. What does it mean they knew they were naked? Well, you know, the Bible says that they were naked and they were not ashamed. But guess what they are now? ashamed. And so what they do? They sewed fig leaf aprons. I don't know where they learned to sew. <clears throat> they learned that somewhere. Men are resourceful, and they're very resourceful in trying to cover up their sin, and that's what they did. They said, this is shameful. we got to cover it up. So they sewed fig leaf aprons together, and that means a lower covering, like an apron. Why'd they do that? They didn't want to know. They did, but now they knew, and they don't want to know. What did they know? They knew fear, they knew shame, they knew guilt, they knew regret. He hid from God. You know, that wasn't happening before he ate this fruit. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7, 9. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came to life, and I died. What does Paul mean? What does he say? He says, I was alive apart from the law. What do you think he means alive? Physically alive? I don't believe he means physically alive. I believe he means spiritually alive. Apart from the law. But then he says, but then sin came to life. And you know what that tells us? That tells us that sin was there, but it was dormant. It was dormant. But then something happened that caused that sin to be uh, energized or come to life or have power. And before that, it didn't have power. And what was it? It was when the commandment came. When the commandment came, sin came to life and I died. What's he describing? What he's describing is when I had the knowledge of good and evil, I understood it was right and wrong. The sin that I had committed now had power and it rose up and it killed me. I died that day. This is the death that Adam and Eve died that day. When they learned what sin was, when they knew what sin was, when they became conscious of sin... Sin now had power, it had life, and it killed them. And you know what happened that day? Their sin was imputed to them, it was counted to them. See, sin doesn't have power without the law. Luke chapter 18, verse 16 says this But Jesus called to them, called them to him, and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. I want you to know something before, because I'm going to say something that might be somewhat controversial in a moment, but I want to start with this. Little children are not guilty in the eyes of God. They're not guilty. He doesn't hold them accountable. But you know what little children do? They sin. When my son, son learned to talk, you know what he learned to do right after he learned to talk? He learned to lie. And he was our first child, so he's the only child in the house. And there were things that he would do, and I would confront him about it. I would say, Van, did you do this? You know what he'd say to me? I didn't do that. I'd say, did you do this? He'd go, no, sir. I'm like, well, I didn't do it, and your mom didn't do it. I mean, who did this? I don't know. It wasn't me. Now, is that a lie? Yeah. Is lying a sin? Yes. Do you think God at that moment looked at my little two-year-old son and said, guilty? I don't. Why? Because he doesn't have the mental cognition to understand what sin is. Sin is there, but it has no life. It has no power. It doesn't rise up and say guilty. He does not have that within his capacity. But see, Paul says, I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, when I understood who God is and I understood his law, then the sin that I committed came to life. You know why it's so uh, impossible for man to be righteous? Because the moment that we reach an age where we know what right and wrong is, you know what our first, our first realization will be? It's too late. I've already sinned. I've already sinned. But God doesn't count sin against someone who is incapable of understanding His law, understanding what sin is. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And I want to go back to Romans 7 just for a moment. I want to look at the passages around that to to grab the context of what Paul was saying when he talked about this. Notice verse 8, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So sin itself was dead apart from the law. I was once alive without the law, But when the commandment came, sin revived or came to life, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring to life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Now, it can be very wordy and very, very hard to understand, but let's first understand this. He's not saying that the, that the commandment was sin or saying that the law of God is what caused him to sin. He's saying that the commandment and his understanding of the commandment is what strengthened sin, which killed him. God gave the law to give us the knowledge of sin. Just like the tree, even though it didn't have miraculous power to endue knowledge, when they did what God said not to do, it awakened their conscience. They knew and they died. You know what? The same thing happens to us when we know. When we know. We die spiritually because of sin, the sin that's in our life. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor His ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. What is Isaiah describing here? He says, it's not that God can't hear you. In fact, it's not that God can't deliver you from the bondage that they were in. They were in bondage, real bondage, physical bondage. He said, it's not that God can't reach down and deliver you. He's chosen not to. Because of your iniquity, because of your sin, you've separated yourself from God, and that's the truth about sin. It severs that relationship, and we see that there in Genesis chapter 3. At one time, Adam and Eve, they talked with God, they walked with God, they had no fear of God, but after they had committed sin, and they knew about their sin, and they felt the shame, and they felt the fear, God drove them out of His sight. And they were removed from the garden. They were removed. There was a separation from them, uh, from God rather, and from the tree of life because of the sin that they committed. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 13 through 14. As Solomon concludes this great letter of wisdom, his experiment, we might call it, He concludes with these words. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now listen very closely to verse 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows everything that we ever do? Everything. Good and evil. He knows it all. And one day God will bring every one of those things into judgment and he will repay accordingly. But you know, I know things about myself that no one else knows. No one. My wife doesn't know. My closest confidant that knows more than my wife does, he doesn't know. A lot of things you don't know about me. They're those secret things, right? I bet you've got similar things you've done in your life that nobody else knows about. Right? What if you were standing where I am, right here, and this looks like a crowd of maybe 85, 90 people, and what if everybody in this room, all in one moment of time, you knew everything that you ever thought? Everybody in here knew every thought that you'd ever had run through your mind. Would you stand up here and say, Aren't I righteous? I love y'all. I really do. I love y'all. If you could see all those things in me right now, I'd grab my daughter. I might leave Warren here. (laughs) We would drive back to West Texas. And I probably wouldn't show my face in College Park again. That's how I'd feel. I'd be devastated, humiliated. And I bet you would too. You know why? Because I'm not clean. What if everybody in here knew every word you'd ever spoken? Would you really feel like a righteous person? You know what we'd probably do? We'd look around the room and we'd start apologizing, right? Start apologizing. Because all those things are now open. They're known. What about every deed? Every time that the the door was closed, the blinds were drawn, those things that we did in secret, what if all those things came to light? They were all exposed all at once and everybody knew those things. None of us would say I'm a good person. And the reality is God already knows every one of those things and even knows the intention that caused us to do it. We're not righteous. We're not righteous. And you're probably thinking, I did not come here for this. (laughs) I did not come here so you could tell me that I'm a scumbag. That's not my point. But if we're going to understand what it means to be made or imputed righteous, we have to understand we're not righteous. So we're going to continue for a moment. Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about a world without God. And make no mistake, that's what he's talking about. These Gentiles, these pagans, these heathens who did not have God in their life would not glorify or recognize God or be thankful to God. They lived in a godless world a godless society, and they were full of corruption. And he says, being filled with all unrighteousness. And he starts mentioning several of these unrighteous deeds that they did. And he says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, Proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. He said, Why are you highlighting things in yellow? That's my list. What's yours? Do you have a list? Can you honestly look at that? And this is not an exhaustive list, by the way, but can you look at this list and say, I'm not guilty of any of those things. I've never done any of those things. Even that one? You know what we are? We're guilty. That's what we are. And if justice happened, if we had, because we talk about that a lot, right? We want justice, we want fairness. I don't. I don't think you do either. Because here's what Paul says. He concludes this by saying, who knowing the righteous judgment of God. You know what that is? The equitable and fair judgment, verdict, sentence of God. Those who practice such things are deserving of death. What are we? We're dirty. We're filthy. We're guilty. We deserve God's wrath. That's who we are. The wages of sin is death. Okay, now we can switch gears a little bit. We got a good grasp. We got a good grasp of who we are. We have sin. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15 says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now listen, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject, to bondage what's he describing here he's describing jesus and in this first phrase he says for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood what's he mean he means you and i live in bodies that are made up of flesh and blood and jesus took part of the same he lived in a human form why so he could die and so he took part of flesh and blood so he could die and that through that death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil and deliver them. We talked about this last night. I want to reiterate it for a moment. The idea of rescue. Rescue. When you're not righteous, there is no way to be made righteous on your own accord or power. None. You have none. No matter how many good deeds you do, now, how, many, how much money you pay, no, no matter what you try to offer God, you will never, ever, ever make yourself righteous. What you need is rescue. And Jesus came to rescue you. To rescue you from your unrighteousness and your sin. And to do that, he had to die because that's the wages of sin. Jesus died in your stead as a substitution. He paid the penalty for you. Romans chapter 5, 6 says this, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. I want to really hone in on verse 6 before we continue. Let's look at it once again. For when we were still without strength. You know what that means? It means we were powerless. We were helpless. We needed a helper. We needed a rescuer. And who did Jesus die for? We say he died for all those good people. No, he didn't. He died because we're filthy. He died because we're ungodly, not because we're godly. He died for the ungodly. For scarcely, he says, for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure. For a good man, somebody even dare to die. So even Paul uses that in a relative way, that we look at some people, we think they're a good person. And, you know, for some good people, we might die for that person. But would you die for a wicked person? Let me ask you a question. Can you imagine any scenario... Where you trade your one and only son to save the life of a criminal on death row. I've got one son. And right before church, we got a tornado warning. And guess where he's at? At my house. And I called him. You know why? Because I'm worried about him. Because he's 18. And you know what happens? 18-year-olds are full of testosterone and stupidity. But I love him. And I want you to know something. I love you, but you can't have him. And if that was the exchange I had to make, my son for you, it's you. I'm just being honest. I love him. But God loves you, and he loves me so much, that even looking at us and saying, you're filthy, you deserve to die, and I love you, and I'm going to send my son to be tortured and killed because I love you. Not because you're good, but because I love you. Jesus said, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, there's, there's, sometimes we get hung up on literal words, and so sometimes there's this large debate about, well, what happens to sin? Are they covered? Are they remitted? Are they washed? Are they cleansed? Okay, here's the answer. Yes. 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 And we get hung up on that. Well, are they washed or are they covered? Yes. Because don't get hung up on those words. It's all describing the same thing. You know what it means? Your life is hidden. It's hidden by the blood of Jesus. Your sins are remitted. They are removed. But here's, not, here's what doesn't happen. Here's what doesn't happen. When your sins are removed, that doesn't make you righteous in reality. It means God now imputes. He counts you as righteous. He counts you as righteous. And you know what he had to do to accomplish that? Count Jesus as sinful. He made him to be sin. No, he didn't make him commit sin. He punished him for sin. He imputed our sin to Jesus so he can impute Jesus' righteousness to us because we don't have any We needed His righteousness. And I want to ask you a question tonight. Do you have the blood of Jesus? Because it doesn't matter how you live your life from now on without the blood of Jesus, you will stand before God and He will condemn you for your sin. The blood of Jesus is the only thing, the only hope that you have of God counting you, imputing righteousness to you. And without it, we're deserving of death. How do you get the blood of Jesus? First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just, that's Jesus, for the unjust, that's me and you. And here it is again. He who was just and knew no sin died for who? Those that were sinful, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. We talked about reconciliation and atonement last night. That's what Peter's describing here, that he who was just... Brought us the unjust to God. How? By taking our sin. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You know, that's kind of hard to hear. I mean, we always say that, right? I want to do what pleases God. You know what pleased God? To inflict the punishment on Jesus for our sins. That pleased God. What does that mean? Does it mean it made him happy? Well, listen to verse 11. He shall see the anguish of his soul and be satisfied. What it means is that's good enough. That's sufficient. That's a sufficient payment for what my justice demands. And so here's the reality. Can you pay for your sins? Yes, you can. By receiving the just payment from God. Condemnation in eternity forever. Or Jesus can pay that debt. And he did. He paid that debt. But without his blood, without becoming becoming God's son, his child, punishment is on you. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 here, as Peter was preaching to a multitude of Jews, he said, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken him by lawless hands, have crucified him, put to death. Who was it that decided Jesus would die on the cross? And there's a lot of debate about this. Some say, well, it was the Jews. And some say, well, it was Pilate's fault. And some say, well, it it was these people's fault. But who put Jesus there? Who planned for Jesus? It was God. It was according to His determined purpose. Now, that did not remove the guilt of the people that yelled crucify Him. They were guilty of that, but it was God's plan. That's why it says it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Please God. This was not plan B. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God didn't say, Well, now i got to pay for their sin. Now I've got to find a substitution. That wasn't how it worked. This was planned before God ever breathed the breath of life into man. God knew man would sin. And so according to his determined purpose, according to his foreknowledge, he sent Jesus to die. And these people hearing this message, they were pricked to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, this confuses a lot of people because Jesus said, This is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And now, here Peter says, Repent and be baptized. For the remission of sins. And people say, well, which one is it? Is it the blood of Jesus that remits sin? Or is it baptism? And here's the answer, yes. You say, I don't get that. Well, here's the thing. Jesus' blood is what washes sin away. Baptism is when the blood, which is what, washes sin away. It's not that they both wash sin away... Baptism is when the blood of Jesus washes sin away. Because we're united with Him in His death, buried with Him and risen to life, and we contact the blood of Jesus. And I want to ask you again tonight, do you have the blood of Jesus? Do you? You know what? I I find myself to be very blessed to live where I do. Not only in America, but in Texas. Sorry, Orin, In Texas... And I feel very blessed to live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. I, I think we live in a very blessed part of the world. And you know, we live in a part of the world where there's lots of comforts, lots of luxuries, and, and we have nice homes, we have nice cars, we have air conditioning, which is, becomes far more important when you travel down here. I've got a comfortable bed to sleep in. You've got a good family I want you to know something. If you've got a good family, that is a tremendous blessing and don't ever take it for granted. It's a wonderful blessing. You may have a good job, maybe a job that you love. And sometimes we take that for granted because having a job that, that helps you afford a living and you love it, that's a wonderful blessing. I love what I do. I hope you love what you do. I hope that that's a blessing to you. But here's the truth. If you had all of that, every blessing... Including good health, but you don't have the blood of Jesus, I want you to know what you've got. You've got filth. That's what you've got filth. Because without the blood of Jesus, you can have everything else and you've really got nothing. Because one day you're going to stand before God and He's going to look at you and see your sin and He's going to impute it to you and you'll be punished for it. Or you can come to Jesus. Because Jesus took your sin on himself, and he carried it all the way up to a hill, and they nailed him to the altar, and he shed out his blood. And God looked and said, I'm satisfied with that. And if you come to Jesus and are united with Jesus, then God will no longer impute your sin unto you. He will impute a righteousness that you do not deserve that is a marvelous blessing. That is the greatest blessing. And that's why David said, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes righteousness. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So if God looks at you, what does he see tonight? Does he see Christ or does he see you? You don't want him to see you. You want him to see Jesus. And if you don't have the blood of Jesus, we have all things prepared. You can come tonight and be united with Jesus, buried with him in baptism, your sins completely washed away, completely washed away. Would you like that? Someday you'll stand at the bar on high. Someday your record you'll see. Someday you'll answer the question of life. And I want to ask you, what will your answer be? Because without Jesus, you will have none. Come have a seat as we stand and we sing. Thanks for joining our Sermon Series podcast today. For more, check us out on YouTube or come worship with us on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings.